0: This morning, as we have engaged in our service to this point, certainly it would be in order to again express our appreciation to all who've come our way today, our membership and our visitors alike. And uh, the excitement that we each feel to honor and to praise and to glorify God is truly a magnificent thing. And we're excited at the opportunity God has given us to do that this very morning. As always, it would be appropriate also, I suspect, to mention there are puzzles there in the foyer as you exit in that first folder there in the rack. So if you like to continue working on those puzzles as we move forward in the book of Exodus, we have now arrived, I think the puzzles are from chapters 16, 17, and 18. So uh, have fun with them, enjoy them, and certainly come back tonight when we will study a lesson from the book of Exodus taken from those very same chapters As we come this morning to a lesson entitled, Where Are the Dead? It is a lesson that certainly would be fair to introduce perhaps in the following way. Because after all, as one gives thought to some of the profound and deep questions that cloud our minds, and questions that often come before us, it certainly is fair to say that many things the human being in and of ourselves do not have the capability to answer. There isn't anyone who has passed the scene of death, experienced what lies beyond, and comes back to tell you and I reliably what it is that is there, what it is that takes place, and what is it like to experience it. However, isn't it magnificent that God and His Word, by the greatness of His revelation, has in fact informed us about the details of these profound questions and also the answers that go with them. We would be quick to say, just as was affirmed in Deuteronomy 29.29, that the secret things belong to the Lord. And what God has not revealed, the human mind certainly does not dare try and answer authoritatively. But when God has spoken, when He has shed light on matters such as these, we would do well to pay attention to that and use it to help ourselves day by day to live in the way that would be pleasing unto God where are the dead? There isn't one of us in this audience that has reached any significant age that has not wrestled with the thought of what's life and what's death. What happens when you die? What happens after death? In fact, as parents and as older ones, that's one of the things that we wrestle with as that child finally reaches the age of not just going to a funeral home and just kind of entertains himself for a time, but starts asking, well, what it really is this? What is taking place? And why is everyone here seemingly in this position of honoring this occasion? I might ask today, we devote the next few moments to using the Word of God and addressing where are the dead? What does the Bible say about it? In fairness, that is all that is our interest. What does this book have to say about it? Because frankly, what I think or what my beliefs would be are irrelevant. They're immaterial, and they do not serve to assist any one of you at all. But if God has spoken, and indeed He has, might we look interestingly into that over the next few moments this morning? Where are the dead? May I suggest we begin the lesson by, first of all, identifying the characteristics of a human being, looking intently at those matters that comprise a person, Now, we aren't talking about male or female in particular, but what is it that constitutes you and that what constitutes me? Once we've identified that, then the lesson will almost lead itself because we'll be in a position to address clearly, well, what about those constituent parts? What happens to them at the occasion of death? In order to begin that, let's shed some light starting in 1 Thessalonians 5.23. In the last chapter of that first Thessalonian epistle, the inspired apostle therein, as he made reference to the Thessalonian brethren, affirmed that his wish for them was that your spirit, your soul, and your body would all be preserved unto the coming of the the day of Christ. And isn't it a marvelous stroke of genius in the divine realm that on that occasion, God thus made recognition of the fact there are three portions, three constituent pieces to a human being. There is the body, there is the spirit, and there is the soul. And might we take careful note that the spirit and the soul are distinct. Perhaps you and I might be of the position to think that those two are just interchangeable, that they really are referring to the same thing and even though there are some passages of scripture in which that appears to be the case at the most basic level they are in fact distinct in hebrews 4:12 we read for the word of god is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart so if it's possible to discern to a distinction between them they must be different And hence, this distinction between spirit and soul will be of interest to us to make note of as we consider through the lesson this morning. First of all, let's give some thought to the body. As Paul made reference to it there in 1 Thessalonians 5.23, this is the easiest for you and me to appreciate. The body is merely that physical matter that we see with our eye, that physical body that I'm able to look upon when I see you and also the one you look upon as you see me. That physical body, of course, much is said about it in the Bible. Some of the following things quickly, of course, should come to mind. As far as its constituency, it itself is made of the very same elements that make up dust and dirt. There is nothing fundamentally distinct chemically about your body or mine. Didn't God say in Genesis 2-7, Let us make man in our image. And as that very thought is made, it goes on to affirm that God took the dust of the ground, breathed into the nostrils thereof the breath of life, and man became a living soul. And so that body that is what you and I see is simply made of the same chemical elements as dust and as dirt. In Genesis 3.19, On that occasion, after the sin in Eden, God, looking upon Adam, directly said to him, In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread, till thou return to the ground, for out of it wast thou taken. For dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return. Dust. That body, then, that is the one that is made for you and for me is simply made of those elements of dust and dirt. But you'll notice as you give some additional thoughts to that, that body that is able to be looked upon by you and by me, it is a very special thing in some ways. The organs that are therein were designed and fashioned by God and they carry out their functions. And in Psalm 139 verse 14 we read, "'I will praise thee, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are thy works, and that my soul knoweth right well.'" David's description on that occasion was about the beauty and remarkable character of the human body, and he said, Marvelous is it! May we thus give some appreciation to the specialness of it? But perhaps one set of notes would be fair to end. That physical body is not permanent. It is not eternal. How often does the Scriptures bring to our mind the realization that again it will return to the dust of which it's made? It will deteriorate and decay. It will not last on and on. That very thought brings us to our own mortality, doesn't it? To the reality and the existence of death. Just as surely as perhaps that is noted, upon its demise or on its decay, it does return to those basic elements of the dust. To this point, we've discussed the body. Waiting on our list are the two others. Let's turn our attention to the Spirit. When reference is made to the spirit of man, what is it that is being discussed? You are a spirit and so too am I. You'll notice as reference is made to this spirit in the verses I've listed for you. That spirit is wholly separate and apart from the body. Completely distinct. That spirit that is you or that is me did not generate from some matter of evolution. It didn't generate itself by some particular means of mechanism. It was expressly and directly given by the God of heaven. In Isaiah 42.5, we notice on that occasion, the inspired writer affirmed that it's God that giveth the spirit of man to him. In Zechariah 12 verse 1, that marvelous minor prophet on that occasion said, Is it not God that formeth the spirit of man within him? In Hebrews 12, verse 9, a rhetorical question is, I ask, Is not God the Father of our spirits? In each of those instances, we learn that that spirit is directly given by God, and it is given at the time of conception in the womb of a woman, that eternal spirit, that spirit that begins its existence on that occasion being given by God. And we quickly learn that not a single time in all the Holy Scriptures is it stated that that Spirit will cease to be from the time its existence begins. That Spirit is eternal. That Spirit is immortal. And in that regard, you and I, remember, are said in Genesis 1.26, that in the image of God made He Him, male and female created He them. It is true from John 4.24 that God is a Spirit. And they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. And thus, when it says that God is a spirit, you and I also are spirits, and in that regard, we bear an essence of God Himself. In the same way that God is a spirit will never die. Psalm 90 verse 2, Isaiah 46 verse 10, So too it is with us, once the spirit begins its existence, it will never cease to be. That alone is a remarkably special thought, isn't it? And it's challenging, and it's profound. But that's what the Scriptures teach, isn't it? That spirit, that immortal part that really is you and me, in finality and in a basic character, that really is what the human being is, an immortal spirit, a spirit that will never die. That thought gives the human being a rather special nature, doesn't it? Because notice... Of any animal, it was never said that it was made in God's image. The animals do not have this immortal spirit that is you and me. Dogs, cattle, snakes, fish, you name it, they were not made in God's image like you and I are. You and I are immortal spirits, therefore, and they are not. As we've looked at those two pieces to the human being, the body on the one hand, the spirit on the other, that leaves us the soul yet to be considered. In frankness, this one is more challenging, primarily because of the many ways that word can be used in the sacred scriptures. I've tried to highlight just a few of them. With regard to this consideration of the soul, the word is used in the Bible in a variety of contexts and in a number of ways. For example, there are occasions when the word soul seems to mean nothing more than person, just means an individual. For instance, on the day of Pentecost, about 3,000 souls obeyed the gospel that day and were baptized. Thus, just 3,000 people responded to the gospel call of invitation, Acts 2.41. In 1 Peter 3, verse 20, we learn that eight souls were saved in the days of Noah. It just meant eight persons, eight individuals. So it is possible for the word soul to be used in a way that merely refers to a person. However, it can also be used in a way to refer to the act of breathing. And it's somewhat interesting that the Hebrew word, that and also the Greek one that appears in the scriptures, really at its fundamental level has reference to breathing. That which breathes in one sense of the word has this matter of a soul. Now keep in mind, this is distinct from that eternal spirit and the fact that you and I have lungs and are capable of breathing, and thus give the appearance and all the reality of life, in the way that word can be used, we are said to possess the matter of soul. But you'll notice there's another way that the word sometimes is used. Jesus said, In Matthew 10, 28, "...Fear not him which can kill the body, but hath nothing more than he can do. But rather I tell thee that thou should fear him which can kill both body and soul in hell." There Jesus used the word as a synonym for the Spirit. For it's the Spirit that will ultimately find its way to hell for those that are wicked, for those that are unprepared to meet the Lord. It is that Spirit, you see, that's eternal." It is in these ways that we have gained an understanding then of the body, the spirit, and the soul. The body is again that inanimate thing that is made of the chemical elements, that is what you and I see with the physical eye. The spirit is that animating force that gives life to the body. It is really what constitutes at the fundamental level that separate and apart from the body, which is the human being. The soul is merely that matter that is exhibited in the body when the spirit is, a, is there present in it. It, in fact, is though that reality of the body itself being alive. To look at all three of them, we notice that all three were mentioned by Paul in 1 Thessalonians 5.23. And now the question comes, as a person comes to the point of death, what happens to these three? Thankfully, the Bible gives us information about all of that. And let's proceed then to look at it in the following way. Death. What is it? You and I have so often been called upon to stand in front of that casket or perhaps at the cemetery. And perhaps it does cross our mind, what is this and what has taken place? Thankfully, we have a very short passage that explains all of it. In the closing verse to James chapter 2, James there in his discussion of works and its relation to faith simply made this comment. It begins in the following language. So then faith, if it hath not works, is dead. But he began that verse by quickly noting, as the body without the spirit is dead, so then faith without works is dead. The body without the spirit is dead. That preposition without means apart from or separate from. The body separate from the spirit is dead. Perhaps we can put all that together in language that occurs in some verses at the top of that slide. While the spirit is inhabiting the body, the body is said to be alive. And you and I appreciate that that person is alive. But when the time comes or the occasion takes place... "...in which that Spirit departs the body, the body is now said to be dead." Simple to look at it in that way, isn't it, because of what God has said. "...Thus, on the occasion of death, the Spirit has departed the body." Now, that's certainly a far cry from saying the Spirit is dead because we've already learned the Spirit doesn't die. And hence, as it departs the body, it resides elsewhere. We shall now need to ask, where is this place?" Where does this spirit dwell? Does the Bible say much about it? Thankfully, it does. So at death, we learn that the spirit has departed the body. The body, without now its spirit, is now said to be dead, and it precedes its decay back to the elements of which it was made. However, that spirit is alive and well elsewhere, residing in a place that God has prepared for it, where is this place? First of all, notice a number of passages that shed some light on this reality of the Spirit as it departs. In Genesis thirty-five eighteen, on the occasion of Rachel, Jacob's beloved wife giving birth to their second son, the second one that she bore, his name would ultimately be Benjamin, but you might recall that she died in childbirth. She passed away in giving birth to that little boy. But as we notice in that verse, it says, she died, but it quickly goes on to say her soul departed. Reference to that eternal spirit that really was Rachel, it departed in the activity that was recognized as her death. Notice some other passages that are also interesting in their import. In Genesis 25.8, with respect to Abraham, we remember on that occasion it says that he came to be old and full of years, He gave up the ghost and he died. But it goes on to say, as the verse closes, that he was gathered to his people. How do you and I put that together and make sense? It says he died. How then was he gathered to his people? There have been those through the centuries who have asserted, well, that just means he was buried with his ancestors. That cannot be the explanation. Remember, his father was Terah. He was buried way back in Haran. God had called Abraham to this new place. Abraham wasn't buried where his daddy was. And thus, being gathered to his people doesn't have anything to do with being buried near his ancestors. Let's look at another passage before we explain it. In Genesis twenty-five seventeen, it says of Ishmael that he was gathered to his people when he died. In Genesis 49:33, Jacob was gathered to his people when he died. In Numbers 20:24, 20, Aaron was gathered to his people when he died. We also see in Numbers 24, as well as in Deuteronomy 32, that Moses when he died was gathered to his people. As often as that phrase occurs, it apparently is very significant. What could it mean that he was gathered to his people? We've already learned again that it has nothing to do with where his physical body was buried. At least in regard to Moses, that is abundantly clear. For recall, God buried him somewhere on the mountain, and not to this day, not a single person knows where he was buried. So it cannot possibly mean that he was simply buried or his body was near his ancestors. Here's the meaning we now know that spirit is eternal. At the time of death, the spirits of all of these illustrious Old Testament characters simply proceeded out of the body, and they were all dwelling somewhere else. Thus, when Moses was gathered to his people, or when Abraham was gathered to his people, his spirit had now gone to a marvelous reunion somewhere else. And it wasn't on this earth, of course. This beautiful recognition of being gathered to their people of course, holds in our mind also the beautiful hope of reunion someday. Those individuals who we've loved up on this earth and who've passed from the earthly scenes of this existence, if you and I are believers in the Bible, and if we have committed our life to the following of the Master, we have every hope in reality that if they were faithful that we all will be able to be together someday, we'll be gathered to our people. Isn't it interesting then to give some thought to what else the Bible says about this spirit and where it goes. You may notice that some of the next statements lead us to some of the usages of Jesus as well as the other individuals of the New Testament. I think one of the statements that David made is one of the most keen ones in regard to this. The scene is probably a familiar one to us when we remember that David committed adultery with Bathsheba and to that union a baby was born. However, as punishment, and as the, un- the will of God unfolded, that baby died. In 2 Samuel 12, verse 23, listen to the words of David. David said, I shall go to him, he shall not return to me. Did David have full confidence and belief he'd see that little boy again? He sure did. He said, I'm going to go to him, but he won't return to me. In that very simple note of 2 Samuel twelve twenty three. It's time then to look at how this place is described. The Bible uses the word Hades to describe this realm of disembodied spirits. That is a fair way of describing it. Again, when you think about disembodied, that's just a word that means without the body. So at the time of death when the spirit departs the body, the spirit is still very much alive and well. It's just that it's not dwelling in the body any longer. Where is it dwelling? A place called Hades. The word Hades in Greek comes from a very significant set of root words. The prefix a or a means not. The verb eido, e I D O O, means to see. And hence, put them together, this place called Hades in Greek is the place of the unseen. The place, in fact, of the unseen. These spirits. As they depart the body they proceed to dwell in a place called Hades. The American Standard Translation in fact directly makes reference to this in Luke 16:23 as well as Acts 231. In each instance notice the context with me if you would. In that Acts passage Peter in his bold and courageous way was preaching the truth about the death, burial and resurrection of Jesus. But as he discussed that, he said, the soul of Jesus was not left in Hades. Thus, when the Lord died at Calvary, when he died on the cross, we learn in John 19, 30, 30 through 34, that in fact he did die. And his soul, Peter now tells us, had journeyed to Hades. Even the soul of Jesus, that immortal spirit that he was, spent those three days in that realm we call Hades. You'll notice that as Jesus referred in Luke 16 to the rich man and Lazarus, where were these two? Again, our King James translators didn't do us the greatest of favor because here is an important point. There are three different words in Greek, three different words, and our King James translators translated them all with the word hail. But keep in mind they're different and they're distinct. Hades is not the same as the eternal hell. We'll learn that in just a few moments. We learn that when Jesus' spirit left his body, it went to Hades. It didn't, he didn't go to hell. It went to Hades. And when you and I pass away from this life in death, our spirits proceed to this place called Hades, the realm of the unseen. Not only that, we notice those other two words also, quite often were translated as hell, when we really should note the distinction between them. You might notice carefully with me that when we give thought to Jesus, what better example than He might we have? In Matthew 27, verse 50, it says, He gave up the ghost. Now that word ghost is just another word for the word spirit. He gave up the spirit. The spirit that was Him left when He died. Where did it go? To that thief on the cross, Jesus said, "'Today thou shalt be with me in paradise.'" The thief and he, both their spirits, that very day, were going to be in a place, in a realm the Lord called paradise. But yet Peter had said in Acts 2.31 he'd gone to Hades. It thus follows that paradise is in Hades. Paradise is a realm, a region, if you please, apparently in Hades we immediately learn some interesting things about this place. We learn, for instance, from the account of the rich man and Lazarus. Where was Lazarus? He was in a place called Abraham's bosom, the way the text reads. It would thus seem to appear that paradise and Abraham's bosom are one and the same. And they are both located in this place called Hades, but they're places of comfort, for it says expressly that Lazarus was comforted. There's no toil here, no anguish, no difficulty, certainly nothing that would tarnish or mar. A place of comfort. In Revelation 14:13, we read this helpful passage. Blessed are the dead which die in the Lord from henceforth. Yea, saith the Spirit that they may rest from their labors, and their works do follow them. This place called paradise is a place of rest, a place of comfort. It's a place of enjoyment, it would seem, because we do not read of Lazarus having any difficulties or problems here. This realm that we've learned about so far, this realm that is in fact in Hades, we must be careful to notice it is not the same as heaven. It is not the same as heaven. It's in Hades, it's paradise, but it's still not heaven because God the Father's not there. How do we know that? We have several passages that lead us to note this. First of all, Peter's sermon again. In Acts 2, verses 29 and 30, Peter directly said that David, that illustrious patriarch, still had not ascended to heaven. Why? Because his spirit was still in Hades. And do we not read in 1 John 4, 12, as well as in John chapter 3, verses 19 and following, how that no man has seen God at any time. Thus, at the time John wrote that, near the end of the first century, no human being in this form or that had been allowed to see God. But yet God is in heaven. It thus follows that this situation leads us to see that Hades, this paradise realm, is not the same as heaven. We have a missing piece to this puzzle. There is another portion in Hades. We've mentioned so far that those who are the righteous, those who are the faithful, upon their death, their spirit proceeds to this Hadean realm called paradise. But what about those who die who are ungodly, who are in fact corrupted with sin, where do their spirits go? Again, to Hades, but it's not to the paradise realm of Hades. There's another realm you see in paradise, uh, another realm in Hades. What does the Bible say about it? We remember that that rich man in Luke 16, where was it that he found himself? The text says that he died, but he lifted up his eyes in torment, the text says. Isn't it interesting, and you and I should carefully note that at the time of death, that spirit is still as alive as ever. It is capable of awareness. It is capable of recognition. It is capable of appreciation and experiencing what's going on around it. The spirit of that rich man was in torment, and he knew it. And how much he pleaded and begged, "'Send down here Lazarus to cool my tongue from this flame.'" You see, he was not in a place of bliss or happiness, this realm of this realm of hades apparently is referenced in second peter 2 verse 4 and yet again our king james translators translated another word with the word hail, when that is not the greek word the word is the word is tartarus It is a place in which the angels were reserved, those angels that had sinned. And God cast them down. They were reserved in this place in punishment, under chains, in darkness, until the day of judgment. Notice it's a far cry from paradise. This is Tartarus. It's a place of torment and anguish, a place of extreme unhappiness and agony. It's a place of incredible difficulty. We've learned then this realm called Hades has two compartments or two regions in it. One of them is a blissful area called paradise. The other, an awful place called Tartarus. At this point, we've learned then at death what happens. The Spirit proceeds to these places. However, the story still isn't over. Because in the last few moments of our lesson this morning, let's complete the story and finish the saga in language like this. In summary to this point, we've seen that at death, the spirit departs the body, the body is buried, precedes its decay to the elements of the earth. The spirit has gone to Hades, where it dwells either in Tartarus or in paradise. But this final note is worthy of being made. The question might, in fact, come to us like this. Will there ever again come a time when that body will have its spirit back in it and thus be alive again? Will there ever be a time that spirit will come out of Hades and will re-inhabit the body and thus resulting in the body being yet again alive? We are given every assurance in the Scriptures that that's going to happen. In fact, that body that we bury, despite the fact that it may decay back to the elements of the earth, we are given assurance that the time is coming when our Savior returns again at the end of time. There is going to be a resurrection. The Lord stated it in language like this. Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming when all that are in the grave shall hear His voice and shall come forth, they that have done good unto the resurrection of life, and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. Those bodies then that you and I have seen buried, the time is coming, Hades is going to be emptied. The spirits that are there are going to come out. They're going to re-inhabit these bodies. And we should notice that the bodies that will then be in existence won't be exactly the same as the ones we now have. Paul discusses that in 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 35. We learn, if we may summarize, that that body that we will have then will be an incorruptible body. It will be fit for eternity because never again will it decay. Never again will it deteriorate. Never again will it cease to be anything other than permanent. It will be a body equipped and fit for all eternity. Thus, when Jesus returns... The puzzle that we've described will be finished this way. When our Savior returns at the end of time, Hades will be emptied. All the spirits that are therein present will come out of that place. They will be, in fact, inhabiting risen bodies that will be changed. Bodies that will be fit for eternity, they will be immortal in character. And when all of that takes place, we now appreciate that Hades will be destroyed. Revelation 20 verse 14 Hades will be no more then. There will be no need for it. Because on that occasion, when there is this resurrection, it's at that moment that judgment takes place. Every individual who has ever lived will then stand before the judgment bar of the God of heaven. Those, in fact, who have lived righteously and who have done the commandments of God will be blessed with entrance into heaven. Those, however, who have done wickedness and who have not availed themselves of the redemption offered through the blood of Christ, they will be found lacking and wanting, and they, you see, will be consigned forevermore to a place called hell. Those matters, in fact, the Lord described in Matthew 25, the very last verse of that chapter, verse 46, Jesus made reference to two things, eternal life on the one hand and everlasting punishment on the other. At this point, the question that comes to each and every one of us should be this. Where do you and I stand as we approach the thought of death? If you died this afternoon, will your spirit make its way to paradise? Or will your spirit make its way to Tartarus? For we have every assurance that those who, in fact, on that day of judgment will have emanated from the beauty and bliss of paradise, will be given the blessedness of heaven forevermore. But those who have spent an intermediate time there in Tartarus, a place of torment, they, you see, will be consigned forevermore to a place called hell. The decision is left to us, isn't it? Where are the dead today? They're in Hades. And if the Lord delays His coming, each and every one of us will make our way there as well. We mentioned earlier about being gathered to His people. You and I should give great thought to be gathered to the faithful. We should look greatly forward to being gathered to those in paradise, the faithful ones who have lived their life in open character of serving God and have died with all the confidence that Paul did. Brother Cale read earlier from Philippians 1.21, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Paul, you see, knew very well if the days of his life now here on earth were about to end but he knew he was going to live on somewhere. And he knew all about Hades, and he looked forward to being in that place because it was a place of comfort and a place of readiness in which he would be ready to meet the Lord in judgment. Does that describe you and me today? If you need to make a change in your life, the gospel call of invitation is extended to you. Jesus shed His blood so that you wouldn't have to go to Tartarus and wouldn't have to go to hell. He shed His blood that you could go to paradise and that you could go to heaven. And if we could help you in that way today, we'd be honored to do it. You need to believe with all your heart that Jesus is the Son of God, John 8, 24. You need to repent of your sins, for that's what the Lord commanded in Luke thirteen three. You need to confess the name of Jesus as your Savior, as we're told in Romans 10, verses 9 and 10. And you must be baptized for the remission of sins, Acts 22, 16. In all those ways, your name would then be written in the book of life and you would in fact be a person ready to leave this life in death but live faithfully till that time. And if you haven't done that, perhaps you need to come back to your first love today. We'd be happy to pray with you and for you. In past weeks, we've witnessed that and had the privilege of partaking in it. Today, we could do the same for you if you need to confess sins publicly because others know about it and you want them to forgive you and you want them to pray on your behalf for your forgiveness, we could all pray in just a few minutes and that would be accomplished by the promise of God. If we could help you today in either of these ways, don't delay, but make your response while together we stand and while we sing.